If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I'm a hypocrite. I ask for sincerity and I lie. I denounce the system as I embrace it. I want money and power and prestige. I want ratings and success. I don't give a damn about you or the world. That's the truth. For this, I could say I'm sorry, but I won't. Why should I? I mean, who the hell are you anyways, you audience? You're on me every night like a pack of wolves because you can't stand facing what you are and what you've made. Yes, the world is a terrible place. Yes, cancer and garbage disposals will get you. Yes, a war is coming. Yes, the world is shut to hell and you're all goners. Everything's screwed up and you like it that way, don't you? You're fascinated by the gory details. You're mesmerized by your own fear. You revel in, in floods, car accidents, unstoppable diseases. You're happiest when others are in pain. That's where I come in, isn't it? I'm here to lead you by the hand through the dark forest of your own hatred and anger and humiliation. I'm providing a public service. You're so scared. You're like a little child under the covers. You're afraid of the boogeyman, but you can't live without him. Your fear, your own lives have become your entertainment. Marvelous technology is at our disposal. And instead of reaching up to new heights, we're trying to see how far down we can go. How deep into the muck we can immerse ourselves. Hmm. Revel and unstoppable diseases, eh? That was from Eric Bogosian and Oliver Stone's 1988 underrated film, Talk Radio. So relevant as meat sacks today project their masochistic narcissism like never before. Not upon talk radio, but the marvelous technology of the internet that's bringing humanity deep into the muck, as character Gary Champlain says in the clip. It's symbiotic and diabolical, and you know who you are because you've been offended recently on social media and got so indignant you had to witch hunt vent in your confirmation bias Facebook wall or some WhatsApp private group. Yes, you secretly love those you claim to hate and relish in the destruction of those you claim to love. You're mesmerized and addicted to fear porn. Brave the digital adrenaline of self-righteous, self-loathing, psychic cocktails. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. You see this crack and Karen energy everywhere today, on Twitter or Instagram, on podcasts and YouTube comments. 
It's a Stockholm Syndrome orgy, a doom scroll plunge into the underworlds of despondency Masca's heroic martyrdom. It's disgusting and an egregore shadow like never before in Western culture. Here at the end of the world in this age of Hermes. Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. And it's the same with Hollywood for all of us. We hate but can't escape Hollywood. We know it's an archontic cesspool, but we want more of that escapist delirium. Heck and heckity, look at me making my points by using movie clips and references. And why not? Hollywood is a primary font of myth, magic, and meaning today. But Hollywood has also weaponized myth, magic, and meaning to cuck and call all that is imaginative, to social engineer a society into numb slaves, to close the doorways to the imaginal realms and open the very gates of hell. We all know this, even as we languish in a synergetic, abusive relationship with Hollywood. How are you to imagine anything if the images are always provided for you? To deliberately believe in lies while knowing they're false. Carl Jung did say, the reason for evil in the world is that people are not able to tell their stories. Today with Hollywood, not only can we not tell our stories, but our stories are told for us. Wrapped in oligarch agenda and infused with soul-castrating enchantments. And the gates of hell open more. Well played, Archons. Well played. What do you think? Sir, this is a Wendy's. Okay, never mind. But you true seeker warriors are probably wondering what can be done. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention YESTERDAY! Much can be done, and our astral guest always provides those red pill suppositories that crack and melt real nice in these outer rectums of reality. You'll be gaining that gnosis to paradoxically exercise and integrate all those demons coming out of the gates of hell that Hollywood broke open. If you're frightened of dying, and, and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. So please welcome Jason Horsley, who materializes at the virtual Alexandria Inn to discuss his new book, 16 Maps of Hell, The Unraveling of Hollywood Superculture. What a powerful and profound read, I say, I say. Disturbing and elevating at the same time. I love all that Jason produces, and you won't be disappointed with the interview. Hell is closed and all the demons are here, as Shakespeare claimed. But we are the freaking outcasts, the sons and daughters of Hermes the God of Thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. 
As the world burns in madness, we rise from the ashes of forgotten gods and one more time steal the fire of creator gods and their butt slaves in the establishment. We see the world the way it really is and hope that one day all mankind might see the same. What is the world then? An illusion, one which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. Here we go again, White Snake, at A.M. Bite Gnostic Radio. I, your host Miguel Connor, that pompadus of Gnosis, is honored to serve you as always. We run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. We're raging against heaven and storming the open gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. We are the veterans of a thousand psychic wars, Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas, and spiritual entrepreneurs. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. I read this quote to Jason in a section of our interview from 60 Maps of Hell, but I'd like to read it again for you since it contains part of our liberation. Since there is nothing, finally, that is not nature, there is nothing that can replace or distort or corrupt nature. There are only endless strategies of distraction, a marketplace of attention, and elaborately built devils to prolong our agony and delay our inevitable awakening. The forgotten chamber of hell plays endless reruns to keep us enthralled. But there are no movies in heaven. He said the only thing that burns in hell is the part of you that won't let go of your life. Your memories, your attachments, they burn them all away. But they're not punishing you, he said. They're freeing your soul. No, my beloved true seekers. No movies in heaven, or the pleroma if you would. There is only tapping in directly to myth, magic, and meaning. Being one with eternal imagination. Finally telling our stories instead of the bullshit the angelic ghostwriters of Yaldibaldi come up with. As Christopher Morley said, my theology, briefly, is that the universe was dictated but not signed. What unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? Stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. And who has a better story? All we have to do is stop playing the game of Saturn, divorce those endless strategies of distraction and the marketplace of attention. All we have to do is let go of our heroes and villains, reject the divide and conquer Circe magic, stop reducing the world to good and bad guys. All we have to do is choose ecstasy over entertainment, Write our own gospel and live our own myth. All we have to do is know ourselves. As the Valentinian Theodotus wrote, What makes us free is the gnosis of who we were, of what we have become, 
of where we were, of where rain we have been cast, of where to we are hastening, of what we are being freed from, of what birth really is, of what rebirth really is. You want to understand the universe, embrace the universe, the, the door to the universe is you. I will continue to help you every week on this show and the other aspects of the virtual Alexandria, like finding Hermes. And you help me so much with your assistance and feedback. I truly appreciate you. Oh, you that are so beautiful before they made you forget. Before they stopped letting you tell your story. Definitely check out the movie Talk Radio. Why Eric Bogosian and Oliver Stone are not more relevant just tells you what Hollywood is at its core. And why Jason and I never were able to sell our screenplays. And maybe that's a good thing. I know that the girls at the Red Scare podcast did a complete show last month on the film. So check more there. And hang in there during the holidays. The sun, the moon, and the stars, nature itself, as Jason said, is just fine. Waiting for you to join in the light release of the Tikkun Olam, to awaken as you are eventually destined to. There are no movies in heaven. Nature doesn't need Hollywood or social media. Yeah, and, and what if a woman competes with you in the marketplace and takes your job? And what if black men start dating and marrying white women? And what if homosexuals are teaching your children? And what if you're afraid to walk the streets at night? And what if you see yuppies getting rich while you're standing in the unemployment line? And, and what if your, your government sends you to Vietnam to fight a war they have no chance of winning? And what if your country is slipping away, lost? I know the argument, friend. It's the great theory of history. I've heard it before. It says when things ain't good, instead of getting down and doing something about it, instead of changing your life, it's a hell of a lot easier to blame somebody else. And it just don't wash in my book. There is no room for self-pity, sir, in my life now or you in yours. Ought to read the Turner Diaries, Barry, by William Pierce. Now, it's all there. See, mm -hmm. it says... Yes, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with that novel, a product of the Enlightened now, Mind. Now, mm -hmm. see, the word America, Barry, means heavenly kingdom in the Gothic language. Yeah. It's the real New Jerusalem of Scripture, and it shows you how the Jews are imposters who took the yeah, 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 For those of you who don't know it, it starts idiotically enough in the year 1991. That's and it's correct. written as a diary by a young white racist electrical engineer who joins an underground paramilitary organization known as the order that's right oh, oh am i doing all right oh great well they institute a revolution against zog the zionist occupied government of america and uh, along the way they kill all the mongrel races uh jews blacks homosexuals feminists and other mud people it's an idiotic book written for people with bubblegum brains who never got out of the fourth grade watching reruns of the blob Easy, Barry. You're part of the problem, you see. You're another Jew, another weed-eating Jew in control of the media of this country, and from there you pass judgment on that which you don't know. And there will come a day for you, Barry. And thousands of others like you who have slept with black women, who have lied to us, when you'll hang from your neck with a placard around it saying, I betrayed my race. This is the Aeon Bide interview, and with us we have the pleasure of having back at the Virtual Alexandria, Jason Horsley. 
to discuss his new book, 16 Maps of Hell, The Unraveling of Hollywood Superculture. Jason, thanks for being here. Hi, Miguel. Thanks for the invitation. Pleasure is all mine as always, as mentioned. I think uh, our first interview was like 14 years or 13 years ago, and what a journey it's been. But wow. always good to have you on. Yeah, that long. Yeah. I was in Guatemala at the time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we certainly both believed in different things, and hopefully we've evolved. <laughs> mm. well, yeah, I'd be interested to hear how your beliefs have changed, because yeah, mine have... As you know, they've uh, been on quite a journey of uh, deconstruction. Yeah, I think mine probably have changed, maybe not as much. When we first talked, I was uh, just getting started with the the esoterica, the occult, uh, the alternative, the conspiracy theory. So I've almost, it's almost like I've been playing catch-up. When I talked to you back then, you were already sort of uh, ahead of the journey, if you would. You were thick in it. <laughs> yeah, I was. I'm trying to come out now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So maybe I'm, what, few years uh, behind you. <laughs> but with us two, also joining us, we have the pleasure of having Nate. How are you, Nate? Hey, uh, Miguel, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be on. And hello, Jason. Hi, Nate. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, let's get started. Uh Jason, uh, I guess the question is, tell us why you decided to write 16 Maps of Hell. I would probably say, obviously, I know the answer, and uh, very much similar to the reasons you wrote uh, Vice of Kings and Prisoner of Infinity, right? Uh, Sort of uh, your own exorcism, or as you write in your book, 16 Maps of Hell, is... uh, uh, of course, I caught the union part, is the only way to exit hell is to integrate hell. Yeah, well, that was in the last chapter, wasn't it? And even the last chapter uh, took, I mean, I didn't have it when I thought I'd finished the book. I realized I hadn't finished it. And and so I was, as with previous books, I was really wrestling to get to grips with the subject that had possessed me to write the book. And and, and that that's the process of writing is to somehow extricate myself from from this personal compulsion to resolve something by resolving it and hopefully the, you know finishing the book corresponds with the resolution but i can never be too sure with vice of kings i really felt it didn't quite happen like i couldn't actually finish the book to my satisfaction uh which suggests that i wasn't really quite able to come to grits with the thing that I was trying to resolve with Vice of Kings, which really was that really centered in on my personal familial trauma. Uh, And so maybe with 16 Mounts of Hell, I've taken a step back in in a certain sense. I don't go so directly into my own personal trauma history, although I do go into my personal history, as you know. Um, and And I'm returning to Hollywood as well in movies, which the first book I ever published, Blood Poets, was about movies. And also the beginning of this la- this latest series of write- of books for me was Seen and Not Seen, where I was revisiting movies you know, back then, uh, six years or so ago. Um, so it's a bit, uh, well, there's a Edgar Allan Poe quote that I use, I've used a lot, which is the circle that returneth in ever to the self-same spot. 
much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot uh, that just popped into my mind there um but i was i was thinking the analogy of uh of having to keep going back to a wound because it it hasn't healed right that one, one, one tries to cover it up but uh if it's infected or it hasn't been well dressed it's not going to heal so i have to keep undressing it and and going back there that seems to be what's happening here and um the question you asked me struck me right away the interesting kind of the structure of it like what made me decide to write the book because the answer is is that i didn't decide you know i it, i I didn't really have a choice in it, not in the sense that there was some slave dri uh, driver whipping me into it, but just that I wasn't aware of having decided <laughs> to write this book. It had already, it had already started uh, using me to write it, let's say, um, by the time I realized I, I had agreed. So, I mean, it did begin as a series of blog posts. So that, that was that. I mean, I, I definitely must have decided to do those blog posts um about psychological operatives in hollywood as i called it so that was a more superficial thing and it and it usually begins not the content per se but i mean the the project it usually it usually begins uh, you know prisoner infinity also begun many years before i wrote the book with an art what i thought was going to be a small article about whitley streber so it usually begins with just a kind of nagging interest or curiosity that i want to look at this a bit more closely in the case of the 16 maps of hell um i think the main thing if i recall rightly was this and and i definitely addressed this in the book was this recurring cognitive dissonance that i was experiencing around the stories that were coming out about the entertainment industry um and, and my own research and deductions as well uh about how destructive and abusive it was with my own daily experience of the product, as in I, I really enjoy movies and TV shows, and I like uh, there are certain actors and directors that I, I like and admire. Um, and I couldn't reconcile these two things, and it, and it kept bothering me, as cognitive dissonance does. I mean, that's the nature of it. We can't quite ignore it. So I just wanted to try and resolve it. And there was another element in there in that early series, which was that um, while on the one hand there was all this reinforcing of the mainstream Hollywood narrative that it, it was a creative place for artists and, and, and beautiful people and, you know, that it was creating this wonderful product that we all enjoyed, uh, there was this, uh, this counter-narrative becoming more and more prevalent uh, about Hollywood Illuminati mind control and so on. Uh, not mainstream, but the alternate mainstream of YouTube, for example. And, and that narrative was getting more and more insistent. Uh, and, and so that was creating a kind of third layer of cognitive dissonance because I didn't really believe that either, even though I felt it was closer to the truth. I, did, I didn't feel like it was accurate. In some way, so I just wanted to address that that tangle of 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 disinformation and propaganda of Hollywood with a kind of counter narrative that was supposedly exposing it, but 
but wasn't doing a very good job and it felt like it was in a certain sense i call it conspiratainment it was really it was almost like uh the hollywood the entertainment uh, industrial complex had co-opted conspiracy theory and was was using it to rejuvenate its own products while at the same time using the techniques of of uh, suspension of disbelief and in- infotainment to corrupt the conspiracy research field so anyway so i just that was a superficial it doesn't sound very superficial now some now but that was kind of the conscious way i was like let's look at this but then after i sometime after i'd done the blog post something compelled me and i'm not sure what it was to turn those blog posts into a book and i just thought well that would be easy enough i'll just add you know I'll, i'll cull the stuff i've written and haven't used and just flesh it out with a chapter here and a chapter there and and that was you know that that was the naive me that f- forgot you know when i embark on a book it's never simple easy or quick yeah it's certainly a journey when i read it and i think you just hit on the idea of hollywood being a psyop and you write uh the point of a psyop is not to keep it secret but to have control over the narrative that emerges around it the most affected psyop is the one that can persuade us us it is art because we associate what moves us with art and the art of propaganda is to move us illegitimately and at the end of the day isn't i mean i don't know Hollywood is a secret society, isn't it? I mean, it's got all the hallmarks of a secret society. Uh, well, it, it it does if we understand what a secret... I mean, I think there are assumptions about secret societies, again, and that this is part of the misinformation that is disguising itself as revelation, um, that secret societies uh, themselves are secret and they involve the rituals and the robes and you know there's there's a lot of tropes around what a secret society is which which might confuse us uh into either dismissing the idea that oh, it's a secret society because it's obviously not that apparently obviously or into believing the wrong thing when we start to believe that it is a secret society on the other hand if we think of the mafia as as a better example of a secret society although it isn't often referred to as that, um, or even the CIA, for that matter, that a secret society isn't secret as a society. It's secret. It's a public society that has a, a secrets you know, within it. And central to that secrecy is it poses as something else to what it is. So, I mean, the mafia is, in that sense, not such a great example because everybody knows the mafia um, as a criminal organization, but still they they do all kind they 've got all kinds of fronts and they do all kinds of legitimate businesses that are, you know launder money well they 're not really legitimate that 's the point, but they appear legitimate and so on so it 's close enough um, and um what what else was I going to say there um, yeah, I think uh to understand uh what I like about your book is you you try to couch things in a context again as you're trying to as they've given us a narrative you're trying to offer them a counter narrative and you do this through many arguments for example you talk about instead of calling something a secret society or a conspiracy theory you switch it to 
social engineering. And that's, as you've written in Vice of Kings and others are pointing it out, uh, social engineering is out there in the public. It's admitted. We have the think tanks. We've got the documentation that those on top want to change our society and manipulate our society so that we could have a certain narrative. And Hollywood is definitely a place where social engineering is uh, legion, if you would. Yeah, well, the same with the psychological operations. I mean, as I quote a number of manuals, uh, military manuals for psychological operations, and obviously only the ones that have been declassified, um, and and how overt and open and brazen those descriptions are, and how clearly they indicate the prevalence of psychological operations uh, throughout culture. I mean, the, the focus usually is on um, foreign foreign psychological operations, but that stands to reason that the domestic kind would be more classified. Um, and, and how consistent they are, you know, the nature, the design, and the instruments of psychological operations, so consistent with Hollywood. Uh, it's quite striking. I mean, and this this is my approach to this material is to um, re. Well, it's because I have an actually conspiratorial mindset, so I I don't have the the knee jerk reaction against conspiracy theory unless it's this conspiratainment that, I, that I've touched upon. Unless it's sensationalized and dumbed down, then I do have a adverse reaction but to the idea that there might be uh, groups who are manipulating us and society and have been for thousands of years is not something that i ever had any difficulty with so so in a certain sense i've i've had to i've chosen to try and recalibrate my approach with a more skeptical eye because of being aware of of how um intelligent people dismiss things that are I, I would say are true and are provably true um, because of a knee-jerk reaction against them. But also other, other kinds of intelligent people, perhaps less intellectually uh, oriented, um, believe prematurely. They believe things. They, believe, they, they in, ingest facts embedded in a narrative, and the narrative itself has been shaped and constructed as a delivery device for the facts and as a way to maintain control of the narrative back to the psychological operation. So what I, what I try to do with my recent books is, is just the facts, which, which isn't exactly true because I do, um, uh, I do analyze and I do theorize, but my theories are more sociological and psychological. Uh, I'm not really conspiracy, doing conspiracy theory per se, I'm doing conspiracy fact, and then my theories are more about um, social analysis and and human psychoanalysis. Um, and, and I think one side effect of that, or it's, it's maybe it's a, actually a primary goal, a bit of both really, is that if you if you arrange the facts carefully enough around, for example, psychological operations in Hollywood, it becomes absolutely irrefutable, undeniable that um, this is going on, that um, that there is a central conspiratorial element, uh, covert operations, uh, intelligence, manipulations, 
want to call it anything but conspiracy. Um, but basically, that's what it is, right? Um, right. So it's central, it's central to this. And, and, and you just see it. And I think that what I've found is that I know people, often academic-minded people, who are very skeptical about conspiracy theory and even dismiss it, but they don't dismiss what I do. But it's quite weird because they might still think the conspiracy theory is nonsense, and yet they accept what, <laughs> they accept what I've presented. Uh, so it, I don't know how that works exactly, but I think it's the power of power of evidence. You present the evidence carefully enough, and and you don't necessarily have to go into the narratives that this is conspiracy because the word's been co-opted. And well, as you know, if you read my work, I'm always bringing it to complicity, which is which is we're all in on it, and that does change. That that frame is a, is a radical change of framing, I would say. Yeah, I would I would certainly agree. And uh, so much of your book uh, was striking and uh, sometimes intense for me. Uh, I there's one section you're talking about uh, Brian Hayden's work on secret society and sorcerers and how to control a culture. And Hollywood is nothing original. You talk about how. Hayden tracks archaeologically through prehistory three ways of doing it. And they are, one, to spread terror through the populace. Well, that's Hollywood. To torture the women and steal their creative power. That's Alfred Hitchcock and his, we must torture women more, as you quote in the book, Plenty. And three, to use that power to create surrogate realities, dream matrices, artificial wombs, and attain virtual immortality. So Hollywood is just a continuation of the priest and the king trying to control the resources, the narrative, and rule well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, there's a methodology in it it's going to appear in countless different forms and Hollywood somehow strips bare the methodology and, and makes it very apparent and clear. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it's, it's again, it's, it's more and less than a conspiracy of individuals intending something. It's this, it's this way of um, shaping culture and society and directing it that's been with us for so long that we're products of it that we can't really recognize it anymore and that's the challenge of writing a book like this and it's the challenge that begins with me i mean back to this cognitive dissonance how is it possible that intellectually i can i can deduce that hollywood and its products are toxic while a, a more visceral level um i still go keep going back to them to enjoy them well because they i'm kind of made out of them they've it's like like in the womb my mother was an alcoholic my whole um physio physiological being was formed out of those toxins partly so actually extricating myself from it from that that matrix of control uh it's going to require a lot more than any kind of intellectual deduction and reasoning. It requires a, a, an internal, well, I don't want to say revolution because revolutions go nowhere, don't they? But yeah. the equivalent, <laughs> a true revolution, like a transformation. Uh, and yeah. And until that happens, we, it's, 
it's like the fish in the water. It can't, it can hear rumors about this thing called water, but it just, just doesn't get it, doesn't get it, because it's just never known anything besides water. Yeah, oh, I would certainly agree. I mean, I pretty much watch a tenth of the movies and shows that I used to. Same discovery as you, Jason. Mm-hmm. I still feel it's too much, and I feel I love getting into this content. Like you said, it's part of a, it really is part of our DNA. And I think you even write, uh, you would probably still sell a screenplay to Hollywood, wouldn't you? I know I would. Uh, well, I take the money, sure. <laughs> exactly. um, but I'd also get excited about the thought that I was going to work with, uh, you know, this actor or that director. I couldn't not. I mean, I might say no. I might have the sense to not get pulled into it now. But certainly, my, you know, decades of conditioning, I couldn't help but rest- respond like Pavlov's dog and start to salivate. So. Yeah. It's quite. Um, a, it's it's sobering. <laughs> it is sobering, but at least you, at least you know, and and also too uh, working on. Speaking of Hayden again, he writes about how even in ancient times they found uh, children footsteps into the caves of uh, shamans. So, is this sort of terrorizing children and? maybe feeding off of their essence, something that has just been going on for centuries and Hollywood really has maximized or weaponized for their power, their whatever you want to call it, satanic uh, force? Well, I mean, of course I don't know, you know, what, what went on in the past. We've just got, we've got some sort of record and then a lot of it's deductive. Um, but, there's a number of ways in which I see a correlation between trauma and child abuse and uh, fantasy creation to the extent that, um, you know, we create an, an, an entertainment media that itself is re-traumatizing, um, even though paradoxically it's a way to escape from it. So this is the thing that I've been trying to unravel in my own psyche in terms of what I write about and seen and not seen, the ways in which my own predilection for Hollywood media, including really dark, violent, you know, sort of video nasty stuff at the, the more extreme end, was, was, was evidence that I failed to spot for many years of, of trauma in my own psyche. Um, and so looking at that very specific, very personal internal landscape, charred earth, um, and and then noticing how, how, how closely it corresponded with what you're referring to here and what I refer to, which is the, the bigger picture stuff of, of um, human manipulation you know, of society and of groups and of individuals and corruption and exploitation that's throughout history and prehistory even like we've got the sense of that and of course we've got a huge uh, you know moral indignation in the world now with social justice warriors and all that uh, decrying the patriarchy so there's this there's this historically confirmed or established awareness that we've we've always been in this exploitative human system 
that includes, although this doesn't get talked about so much by social justice warriors at all, but includes or centers around child abuse and even child sacrifice is something that we, we kind of associate with ancient primitive history. It's in the Bible and whatnot, prehistory even. Um, but I think it continues. I mean, that, that's, the, the sort of bald, stark answer can end up like Alex Jones ranting about Hillary Clinton eating babies, you know, <laughs> or, or these neon nettle articles, which are all fake about, you know, Keanu Reeves says that Hollywood elite live on baby's blood. You know, these things actually may be true is, is the worst of it, but we don't know. And, and it probably doesn't help to definitely doesn't help to prematurely go there because it, it is so sensationalist and it's so shocking that uh, either we're going to shut down and withdraw or, or worse, we'll just kind of get into the superficial aspect and be titillated by this idea. Um, but what, what I was trying to get to, I think, was that, it, not separately, but congruent, consistent with the possibility that actual child sacrifice is something that is, you know, continues to this day and is central. And certainly we do, we know that, that uh, organized child abuse is continues to this day. I mean, there's, there's indisputable evidence of that. Um, it's been the backbone of our culture and our society, I think, since the beginning. Um, and, um, I don't, I mean, that's such a huge thing to try and come to terms with that what I try and bring it down to is our direct experiential um, experience of this, which uh, has to do obviously with our own parenting and our own childhood. And, and in this context, our own relation to culture and its products and um, how there's an element of abuse even in this, like uh, the kind of entertainment media that parents give their children. I mean, now they're putting their infants, they're giving their infants smartphones, for example. Well, that's not necessarily uh, exposing those infants to uh, violent media, although they might watch Disney, and we, we kind of know that Disney is pretty sinister and has subliminal imagery and stuff. So we could go there if we wanted. I think you and I have even talked about that subject. But, but I mean, even just give it, putting a kid in front of a TV set at the age of one or giving a, you know, an infant a smartphone, even that's a form of abuse. So it's a, it's a really wide spectrum. And again, it's become so so uh, integral to the culture that we we don't see it unless it gets magnified into something that might be so horrifying that it seems absurd to us but i honestly think that those that stuff that you touched on the secret societies and and the child sacrifice and the child abuse that's ritualized and and so on that stuff um uh well it, it's it's also real and it's um, it's what it looks like if we really draw aside the veil that we've pulled over our own eyes in order not to see that. And yet the veil itself is, is showing us also, as I say, it's, it's just much more subtle, the ways in which we, um, we uh, are complicit with, with child abuse and child sacrifice.
Yeah, and it's been going on since the dawn of time. I I like how you write, uh, filmmaking is sorcery, the modern technological development of an ancient art. And of course, you write about uh, filmmakers like Polanski and Hitchcock perhaps weren't interested in the occult or magic or shamanism, but they were interested in the effects on their audience. And they knew they could sort of weaponize it to get the effects. And a lot, huge part of it was trauma-inducing. Again, going to uh, Hayden's number one to spread terror through the populace. And you tie it in very well with the legacy of Carlos Castaneda's old seers, uh, dreaming to shape the real world. So this is what these individuals were doing. And of course, they had, it's a perfect opportunity for other more materialistic agencies like the mob, military corporations to use this magic or to leverage this magic with these sorcerers like Polanski and Hitchcock or Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was a surprise to me, actually. And, and it's one of the old things about seeing something uh, clearly, more clearly, is that, like, I, I could maybe 30 years ago, I could have written something similar, that filmmaking is just a modern technological development of ancient sorcery. As, as just as a concept, it's not that radical or strange or new, but but somehow, because I came to it, as if for the first time through all of these discoveries I was making, it did, it did land in a way that was was shocking to me. Um, and, and that itself is, I think is, 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 is significant because it's not the same to intellectually formulate something as to, as to really see it. Um, and it does, it, it, it turns everything kind of upside down as I tried to do in that chapter in that summing up or that, that reaching this this insight that um, uh, well for example that the idea that Hollywood filmmakers might be might be secretly sorcerers practicing sorcery somehow never added up for me but when I started to consider the possibility that there might be sorcerers uh, working behind the scenes, which is something I always felt was probably true. And, well, maybe they might actually go to Hollywood and want to use film as, as one of their techniques and tools. That, that just seemed to make perfect sense. And it's, but it's the same thing, just seen from a different angle. Um, and it, but having said that, even there, I think one doesn't necessarily have to go there because even there, that's difficult for the for the rational mind to really believe because it's it goes i mean the, the the essence of sorcery is perception management um and like the magician's slate of hand the main thing is to make sure that we don't see what we're not supposed to see and if we do we don't believe it and that we believe the thing that we're we're supposed to believe that's the whole sleight of hand thing so um that that it was partly why I ended up focusing on Polanski for 16 Maps of Hell, because I realized that I needed to have a much more specific focus and even a protagonist in the book and to really test um, how, or to show how difficult it is to um, pull aside the veil of preconception we might have about the world or individuals within it in this case you know a big hollywood filmmaker uh 
and allow ourselves to see that they might not be remotely what they seem to be. And obviously I can't prove that Polanski is, is, you know, anything but what he appears. All I can do is just keep piling up all the evidence that he isn't what he appears to be. And, and somehow that's the essence of sorcery is that it casts a spell over us so that we can only see um, the reality that we're supposed to see. We can only believe in the narrative that we've been given. We can't imagine there's another narrative outside of that. And, and we can't divorce us, we can't separate, we can't um, take our eyes off the screen, so to speak. So, so it's like we have to start imagining another narrative uh, that, that's the opposite of the one we're caught up in. And then looking at the evidence more closely and then moving the evidence over to this new narrative and just see, or at least putting it close enough to see if it gets pulled into it, is what I tried to do with Polanski, just keep piling up the evidence and see if it would, like like uh, iron filings to a magnet, see if it would start getting pulled into the counter-narrative that Polanski was something entirely different, you know, a part of an organized criminal intelligence operation, possibly with sorcerous, you know, kind of elements to it. Uh, and And how how well the evidence just naturally meshed with and therefore informed that new narrative. And then the old narrative starts to wobble and dissolve. And that, as I said, that was very personal for me because Polanski is almost like a family member. And, that, and that's presumably what, what I'm trying to recreate here is, is probably early childhood experiences of family members who weren't what they appeared to be. But it was impossible to... Uh, confront that and at a certain point it was impossible to even see that because all you know all the pressure was to go along with the uh the false narrative and and submit to it because otherwise life would be unbearable so yeah you know polanski became a kind of surrogate uh identification figure for me in my adolescence clint eastwood was another um and 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 so I got colonized by Polanski and the idea that he was a, he's a good guy, a great filmmaker and a good guy. I kind of loved him in this parasocial way. So that, that was helpful for me to bring it down to one single parasocial relationship that was more closely equivalent to, as I say, a family member or somebody actually in my life where the deception, the self-deception was was essential to, to my survival. That, that, that's essentially how we get co-opted, I think, is, is we, we, we have to invest in, in a false narrative in order to survive. Oh, definitely so. I mean, like you, uh, Polanski, my mom would say his name in awe because he was, well, he was also, as you write, he represented what's best in Europe, but, but he was also edgy and he was... Uh, well, he was a person of awe, but the narrative, too, is also very important. I feel that the uh, Cielo Drive murders was sort of a, a lifting of the veil for those of us who were sensitive or alternative researchers of what Hollywood really was. And as you write that, even that narrative got co-opted, too. 
But uh, in your book, you said, well, you really weren't going to write about it, the Manson murders, but you felt you had to. And mm -hmm. I feel because you really had to, again, reoriented that narrative we were given. Yeah. And that's a strange, again, it's a strange example of, of what I'm trying to talk around here, which is that I... I didn't want to write about Manson and I didn't think it was central to, to my book, <laughs> but, but I just did in the end consciously decide, well, there should be something about him in there and also about that period of the seventies in Hollywood. And uh, I just felt there was, it was a missing piece. Um, and, and as you know, as you're saying, the missing piece became the strongest material in the book, which then led to me, putting it at the very front of the book and then that led me to realizing wait no actually this is the the central narrative of the book this this is the case study in terms of these false narratives um and yeah the manson thing of course it's an it, i mean for me it was always I mean, it took me a long time to see it the way that you're, you, you you described it and the way that I see it in 16 Maps of Hell as an unveiling of Hollywood culture. To me, for for years, it was a glimpse into uh, uh, psychological operations, intelligence manipulations. Like I almost, it feels like I always felt there was something fishy about the Manson case. And and I simplified that and even maybe dumbed it down in my early book, The Lucid View, to you know, Manson, Charles Manson, CM was a Manchurian candidate, MC. Uh, uh, he was controlled. He was a puppet of the, of the intelligence uh, community uh, in order to, um, so for social engineering purposes. And that, uh, there was a mirroring of the Manson murders with Rosemary's baby and whatever was going on with Polanski. So in my first book, pre-lucid view of the blood poets, I, I wrote about the Manson murders. It's like they pop up consistently through my work uh, all the way to this latest one. Uh, but this latest one was the first time I, I began to look at um, Hollywood as, or the Manson murders is something that revealed the nature of Hollywood, as you put it, because and then that that unfolded through the process of of revisiting it for sixteen maps of how how acutely, how clearly that I was able to see that, um, and you know I I sort of summed it up, and it's on the cover of the book now. There's images of Manson and Polanski mirroring each other, and then there's a quote from Charles Manson. I might as well read it as long as we're on it. Uh, he said, the real Humphrey Bogart and the real James Cagney are actors. I mean the ones you know. The real ones, they died in here. In other words, we die so you guys can play actors. We got to be the bad guys so you guys can be the good guys. But in reality, we know that you're not the good guys, that you guys are worse than we are. So that... That's the one that quote mirrored, I wrote down on my notes too, Jason. Wow. Oh, is it? <laughs> that, that flipped things over. I mean, not, not, not that he said that, but I quote it because what, what I started to see was flipping things over, that, that Manson was becoming more sympathetic and more self-aware and more honest, I guess is the point, uh, while Polanski was becoming increasingly 
fitting the profile of what we're told about Manson. You know, this this shadowy, corrupt, uh, sadistic, vicious mind control, uh, manipulating perception behind the scenes, and you know, becoming this messianic cult leader. Uh, that 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 idea we have about Manson fits someone like Polanski better or at least fits the evidence around someone like Polanski better than the Manson so that that flipping of the narrative I think is is central to how we get you know we get our perceptions hijacked and hoodwinked yeah because even uh well even the whole story has it all the the occult the intelligence uh influence the mafia the drug dealing I mean it has it really does have everything it exposes everything and it's not unique to hollywood but even then as i said the narrative got flipped even with something like that even if it was staring at us because like i don't know about you but i did read vincent bugliosi's book many years ago and i thought helter skelter was like the bible of the narrative and as you point out that was just another way of uh another sorcery to get our attention somewhere else yeah, well, it's interesting now because that the main thing with Helter Skelter was the race war that Manson was trying to create a race war, and um, it's that's just interesting in today's context because somebody sure as hell is trying to create a race war in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, right. So it probably has been a, a project for for many decades, uh, or at least that's possibly. I shouldn't say probably, but it seems the evidence suggests so. There are so many layers to the Manson onion, aren't there? Because it does seem as though there was that it was a continuation of an ongoing opera, psychological operation that is decades long. I mean, it gets passed on from one head of the CIA to the next. Not that it's just the CIA, um, and and then and then somebody like Manson uh, pops up as this this player in this grand theatre that he himself has very little awareness about and he expressed that like he got turned into the boogeyman and he and he he cooperated he played the role of the boogeyman he thought at the same time he was saying he was innocent but nobody even believed or listened to that because that was absurd you know the the idea and the image of manson as ultimate evil is so strong i mean that's an example of hollywood and the overlap between the the news media and hollywood the way that Manson was on the cover of, of Life magazine with the staring eyes and just, you know, the whole Manson persona is so much like a Hollywood creation. Uh, and I think Manson did cooperate with it. But at the same time, he was stating, as I discover in the book, he, he made some clear statements that probably did uh, point to what closer to what was really going on so far as he could understand it. Um, as I say, it was a, it's such, it was such, part of such a huge uh, operation that uh, I don't suppose any single player understood it. Um, but anyway, I mean, my 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 interest from the start and to the to date seems to centre around the weird parallels between the Manson murders as they were officially reported, and um, and I shouldn't call them the Manson murders. Tex Watson murders that Manson was blamed for, let's say, um, and, and Rosemary's Baby, and how that was Polanski's into Hollywood. There seems to be some <laughs> a really archetypal thing there 
about sacrificing the child and, and to make a deal with the devil in order to attain success in the world. That That's such an ancient archetypal story. And I think Polanski is really at the heart, well, obviously it was the heart of his own story, but he, he, it was just it was quite explicit with him like he made the movie about it it made him successful then he lost his child and his wife and then then we had the whole manson narrative around that which was about satanism and all the rest of it and and the the mainstream media did they did connect the two but in this very shoddy way that was easy to dismiss as just yellow journalism but as i tried to get in the book with some deeper analysis, uh, there are clear um, indications of a, of a of a psychological operation. There, I would say that included Rosemary's baby as a as an artifact within it. Yeah, you do a great job uh, showing us this, and it's again, it's not uh, just uh, Polanski, but all these directors and movers and shakers. I mean, Hollywood is this nexus of uh, uh, I keep repeating intelligence, mafia, occultism, uh, just everything there. I guess because this is the place where you can control the narrative. And uh, another movie you talk about too, Jason, and I wanted to address, and that's The Exorcist. And I think uh, I always felt, or as someone said, The Exorcist is really like, uh, you might say, Hollywood's first blockbuster. It just, it kind of changed the game. People were coming in droves to sit there and it set the stage for all Hollywood blockbusters. But at the end of the day, this is also one of the most, powerful psyops about child abuse and the occult and everything else don't you agree yeah uh, it's a movie i never liked actually which makes it easier for me to uh-huh. to, to see and deconstruct because as you know i mean my early writing about film was as a film lover and so i still have that strong in me and it and it's the thing i'm trying to to override because it sabotages my judgment when it comes to these deeper deeper dives uh, but with the exorcist i never i never fell for it i always felt there was something really manipulative about it um so so it's interesting to revisit it in this regard and and uh keep finding more reasons to dislike it while <laughs> in the meantime it's being it, it's being constantly rarefied i i just saw yesterday that there's a documentary coming out I think it's on Netflix. Uh, another one about William Friedkin and uh, The Exorcist. This this one, the whole documentary, full you know, full length documentary, is dedicated to uh, the movie and what a genius Friedkin is. Uh, I forget what it's called, um, but I know the focus is on faith, and Friedkin is now. I mean, he was, he has been for a long time actually, but again, he's still pushing the exorcist as this masterpiece that he made that's all about the mystery of faith which i frankly i think is utterly ridiculous um, i think it's kind of an example of hitler's big lie somehow yeah. people whatever I, mean, I guess the the movie has a following and when people are enthralled to a movie they want to believe that they're justified in, in their worship of it and their allegiance to it so if you can somehow 
instill it with this numinous quality that it's actually this great work that explores the human condition. I mean, no, uh, to give Spielberg some credit, I'd never want to give Spielberg credit. Nobody's tried to do that for Jaws, you know, and I still love Jaws to this day, but nobody's tried to present Jaws as some kind of, even as a masterpiece, really, it's just recognized as a wonderfully entertaining movie that was you know, kind of unprecedented in the skill uh, for entertaining that that movie had. And so I'm not going to defend uh, Spielberg or anything like that, but just as a counterpoint that somehow The Exorcist, uh, central to its endurance, is that it, there's this constant insistence that it's not only a masterpiece, which I just it's just not sorry uh but it's um that it's it's about something deep and profound and that even it's benign you know that it's got this benign function so i would say that 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 almost confirms my uh you know how how much i reveal and see about the nature of the exorcist in the book as a as a very quite overt case of a film that's designed in order to to manipulate and to subtly traumatize audiences with and deliver a specific narrative. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the narrative of the movie, but I mean a narrative in the sense of, uh, well, the, the reality of the devil, perhaps, although this is where it gets really confusing and uh, and I don't resolve this in the book. Like, uh the use of fear in the occult, uh, you know, is it cynical or is it is it by practitioners of it? And and are we supposed to believe in it to be terrorized or are we supposed to disbelieve in it so that it can have better manipulate us? I think a movie like The Exorcist kind of has has it both ways. It, I think it appeals to the, the, the atavistic part of us, you could say the child-infant part, but also the the atavistic in the sense, you know, the primitive superstitious part of us. Uh, and we get terrified while at the same time, uh, it's, um, well, the, you know, the intellectual part can dismiss it all, uh, as, you know, as a fantasy about Satan. We don't have to believe in the devil to be scared by the exorcist. I suppose what I'm trying to say uh, where, where the faith comes in, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't yet heard any evidence that anyone has had their faith deepened by the exorcist. But <laughs> wow. Apparently, that's what Friedkin is claiming. So. <laughs> but it also it has uh, all the hallmarks, like again Polanski and Rosemary's Baby and the men's thing. I mean, you've got William P. Blatty, who was a, a Jesuit and an intelligence guy. Uh, you talk about how the, I didn't know this, but one I think a technician or a doctor in the movie was actually a serial killer in real life uh, afterwards. Bateson, yeah, yeah Bateson. Paul, Paul Bateson, yeah. So yeah. it's all this weirdness around it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I'm, I'm hesitant about getting into the minutiae because it's you know it fills up a whole chapter and there's so much. The devil is in the details, as they say. There's so <laughs> many details around the Exorcist and Friedkin, and Peter Blatty, that I would say, for me at least, with possible exception of Leonard Cohen in the book, uh, it's the most compelling case that I make that uh, you know certain players and products in Hollywood are, 
uh, you know, 100% pure, uncut intelligence operations with with the organized crime in there too. Um, and, and so I, I refer to it myself, like when I'm in this cognitive dissonance, I remind myself, the exorcist, William, you know, Peter Blatty, William Friedkin, uh, it's, it just seems indisputable to me. And it's uh, at the various different levels. One can look into the, the backstory of Friedkin and Blatty. There's, there's ample evidence there. One can look at the, the uh, artifact itself, the product, the exorcist, the, the subliminals, the effects it's had on audiences. Uh, and then one can look at Friedkin's own autobiography, the things he points out in relationship with Jolly West, the thing with Paul Bateson, uh, there's weird overlaps with yeah, Paul Bateson being car- cast in The Exorcist um, because he worked at the clinic in New York and then later being charged with the bag murders because of his connection to that hospital, the neuro clinic, I forget the exact word, but while simultaneously Jolly West was working in the equivalent uh, West Coast clinic in California while he had this relationship with Freakin. Uh, Freakin making the movie Cruising, which is about the murders of homosexuals. Uh, anyway, as I say, I can't sum up all the details because it's complex, but it's, um, it's, it's very persuasive for me as, as a skeptical author, and I am. I'm skeptical of my own arguments because of uh, what I say. You know, I've got a, a lifetime believing that I never thought Freakin was a great filmmaker, so he's not like Polanski for me. But still, I you know I, I like the French Connection, and I just I've got this context that Freakin was you know just part of the '70s cinema that I love so much, and it, it the whole House of Cards card starts to wobble if one of those cards can be more or less established as a working intelligence operative who's doing something very different from simply making movies, even though a movie is central to what he's doing. See what I mean? Uh, There's a different end. There's not entertainment. It's not money. It's not status. It's not fame. Certainly not art, art, but Freakin never claimed to be an artist on the contrary. It's psychological manipulation. Yes, it's uh, as we go back to sorcery, uh, shifting reality, becoming godlike. I mean, as I think you're right. Every artist is a recovering psychopath. As artists, that not that what we want, Jason? We want control over reality. Well, I'd say we all do, actually, Miguel. And, and maybe, I mean, there's a, there's a trope that, uh, you know, a bad childhood leads to a good artist, that kind of trope. And probably the part of that that mechanism is is that um when we're tra- uh, to the extent that we're traumatized as children and, and put in these terrible conditions where we're powerless um the more unconsciously driven we'll be later in life to 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 control our circumstances our environment our reality and become powerful to just to try and block out that awful formative experience and unconsciously try to heal it, even though it doesn't work, of course, that way. And um, and so being an artist is, well, there's a number of ways in which you could see that, that that would meet that need to have control. One is that 
the artistic process itself is a way of shaping realities even you know writing i can have total control over how i edit it movie making takes it to the next level where you're controlling individuals you're you're creating sets and object you know it's, it's almost total control it's the equivalent of of almost literally shaping your environment and then the other thing is of course is that in our culture to be an artist to be a successful artist is is very high status it's it's practically the highest status which is i i touched on in the outtake about david lynch at least that we worship artists like gods and so if we feel if we want to be a god then probably the one of the surest routes to that and certainly the one i chose would be to be a, a successful artist well said and uh nate do you have a question for jason sure uh great um so there's two words that you brought up that i would love it if you would just uh explain to the audience quickly uh menticide and schismogenesis or schismogenesis yeah schismogenesis that one's from gregory bates and who's very well respected i have associates and friends who who uh who defend him and, and, and get a bit upset I include him in these dark conspiratorial agendas but as far as I can see uh, he was pretty complicit anyway and he he coined the term schismogenesis but not just as a neutral anthropological observer but as a as a um, member of the OSS you know as a field operative who was who was uh, designing or formulating strategies and methods for for psychological control um, of populations so schismogenesis and we're in a, a time of it now so it's a good topic i mean it's a, it's a good thing we, we can observe it and understand it by observing it but it has to do with what's well, divide and conquer with a fancy name um, but there's more to it as well it has to do with polarizing populations uh, in a way that, um, and this relates to narrative control as well. So, um, I mean, I suppose a good, an easy example now would be the U.S. election. Exactly, but, exactly. <laughs> um, this, and then more and more, seeing that if you're not with us, you're against this kind of reasoning. That, uh, and even the thing around COVID, that you're. Um, if you don't wear a mask now, you're a Trump supporter, for example. I don't know if you've heard this kind of, that this happens in the ideological kind of madness oh, that's, yeah. that's sweeping the people now that you get pushed into one camp or another. There's this increased polarization. And so you can't be in the middle. You have to align yourself with one side or another. And if you don't, you'll just get pushed in or sucked in by the gravitational pull um and it's it, it's it accumulates because if, if you the more that you reinforce narrative and counter narrative obviously the stronger they get the more they pull people into them but also the more people get pulled into them then the stronger those narratives become because they got more and more voices uh, and we experience it uh, I mean, what Bateson was looking at, observing, and then weaponizing was something that everybody knows, really, the doubling down thing. So, um, you know, if somebody uh, has has a strong opinion that you disagree with, uh, you tend to 
strengthen your own opinion about something in order to to resist it. Um, if someone is in, in a marriage, for example, if your partner is being surly uh, and unfriendly, you start being surly back. You don't want to just be open and and and, and loving and offer love in case they're going to reject it. So you you're you know you're waiting to see if you'll get. The, the 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 opening and the confirmation from the other and if you don't you're going to push further into into your own corner this 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 kind of doubling down response we have in order to not be overwhelmed by the by the influence of the other uh is something that's just uh, i think it's universal um so yeah bateson he 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 mapped it and he he turned it into a method and a, and a policy and so on. And um, we've been talking about it today, actually, like when I say about uh, the, the, the way that the, there's a split and the polarization around Hollywood. Uh, you know, either it's this dark mind control Illuminati thing or it's just Hollywood, it's, you know, it's entertainment. Uh, and, and neither is true. I highly recommend you you definitely get uh, 16 maps of hell and uh, well first of all Nate thanks for keeping us company hey thank you so much for having me Jason uh, you do uh, very intense and very thorough and I think um, you do your soul's work and I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to speak with you and uh, thank you for what you've offered and Miguel thank you for having me thanks Nate thanks for saying that it was good to hear yeah, and uh, Jason, uh, you uh, for the audience where they can find out more about you and where to purchase the book. Yeah, same place, all in one place. Uh, Auticulture, a u t i culture dot com, uh, and uh, was a regular blog that I update, and this podcast that's weekly called The Limitless, the podcast between, and uh, they can order the book at any page of the site in the sidebar. Uh, and also can contact me via the site. I always love to hear from listeners, uh, readers, anyone who gets anything from what I'm doing. Um, feel free to reach out directly. It's Jason with a U at protonmail.com. Wonderful. Yes, check it out, audience. Uh, I agree with Nate. Uh, Jason puts out important work. Well, Jason, as always, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Biden. Good luck with everything, including uh, leaving society if you have to. I might be joining you. Right. Well, I'll keep you posted there and see. Uh, I'm going to take it slow. I'm not going to try and uh, leave the, the second womb all at once. <laughs> yeah. Wait till the next season of succession is over and then leave. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jason. Okay. Bye, Miguel. Bye, Nate. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. Jason Horsley on 60 Maps of Hell. Quite a territory. And nobody said getting out of hell to a place with no movies would be easy. But you knew that, and you chose the hero's path. In our second part, Jason will discuss the key concept of lata that could mean your freedom from the grip of the elite. Jason will get more into social engineering and occultism in the movie industry. He'll make the case that Leonard Cohen is just another deep state MK Ultra shill, 
Alas. He'll certainly cover Harvey Weinstein, the Me Too movement, Kevin Spacey, and today's comic book movies. He'll let us know whether he thinks Hollywood is dead with the pandemic and all the scandals, and much, much more. So become an AB Prime member of Patreon at Patreon for the full Helter Skelter. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You won't find this Gnostic and Hermetic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or meat space. When you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership includes full access to the Archives with more than 14 years of quality interviews. It includes an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel where many guests hang out there, and I'm always there to answer your questions. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. Don't forget I'm offering voiceover services if you need some audio for your projects. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Finding Hermes is live more than ever and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include spiritual and mental exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a whole lot of stimulating conversation on many heretical topics and a Q&A. I've already given lessons on Gnostic chants, vowel magic, astral ascent, mystical Eucharist, and much more. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism and its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. And as always, if you've got holes in your pocket due to the monkey shines of Archons, just let me know. I'll give you any full show on the casa. Do it all the time. You can do so many wonders. I just know it. I just know it. And together we are the high priests and priestesses of Hermes and Sophia. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.